All right, so it's my pleasure then to welcome you all to this uh, Environmental Humanities book talk with uh, Bathsheba DeMuth. She's uh, going to talk about her book, Floating Coast, that I've actually enjoyed reading during this lockdown. One of the first books I read uh, while uh, in lockdown here in Norway. Uh, so Bachiba is uh, Assistant Professor of History and Environment and Society at Brown University um, and has worked in this book for quite a while, I know. Uh, we're very excited it came out. Uh, it's already received awards. I don't think it's the last one, the one she got from the um, uh, American Society for Environmental History. I know we should have been there, all of like a lot of us, at a conference, yeah, which was cancelled. Uh, but these uh, online book talks are good, uh, well, not a full replacement, but it's a good way of trying to at least uh, meet up with each other and discuss the exciting new scholarship coming out. So I'm just going to uh, let the, leave the microphone over to you and you can uh, uh, talk about your work. Right. Well, thank you um, to Dolly and Panani for having me and thank you all for coming this morning or afternoon uh, or whatever time it is where you happen to be. Um, it's really lovely to see all of you here and, and meet many of you for the first time. I know some of your names from Twitter. Um, so, hello. Um, it's also really heartening for me to see so many people interested in a place that, um, as W.H. Auden put it, can really feel like it's a it's altogether elsewhere, uh, which is to say the Arctic, which unless you happen to be in Norway um, or Alaska or parts of Northern Canada can seem extremely distant from you know, our everyday lives here in the, the sort of more temperate parts of the world. But part of the reason that I wrote this book is because I wanted to um, bring the Arctic into the, the lives and the living rooms and, and home spaces of people who do live far away from it. Um, and as a way of showing that the Arctic is not actually altogether elsewhere, um, but in fact is a place that can really clarify uh, how we might think about the relationship between humans and the non-human world um, in the past and the present, kind of more generally. Um, I'm also writing about the Arctic because I lived there for quite a while. Um, I became fascinated by or fixated upon or obsessed with, depending on how you want to put it, um, with the North about 20 years ago when I, I moved up to a little village in Northern Canada called Old Crow. Um, and my job in that village had nothing to do with being a professional historian, which is not a, a thing that I imagined doing at the time. Um, and in fact, what I was there to do was to train sled dogs um, in a little village that's about 100 miles from the nearest road and about 100 miles north of the Arctic Circle. And I pretty quickly had to learn in this uh, part of the world that the expectations that I had about how life should run um, that came from being raised in, in Iowa in a very temperate agricultural part of the world really didn't work anymore. Um, my expectations that mechanical things would operate um, were put under enormous stress and the environment itself just operates in a very different way than, than one that's um, you know, kind of fully agricultural in the way that Iowa is. So one of the things I had to learn pretty quickly was to pay attention to the environment in a far more granular way than I did in my day-to-day -day life. And in fact, than I have to in my day-to-day -day life here in Rhode Island now. But at the same time, I also learned pretty quickly that um, 
while the environment really pressed in on everything that I did in a day, and it often was very clear to me that what was making decisions about you know, whether or not I was going to live or die, or whether or not we were going to have food to eat had nothing to do with human beings. And in fact, were decisions made by moose or bears or the weather, um, that human ideas also really mattered in this particular space enormously. So while the actions and desires of the bears mattered, it also mattered the way that people understood those animals and how they chose to relate to them. And what this meant is that you know, I, I moved up there when I was 18. Um, so this is equivalent to your first year of university for most people. It's a pretty young, uh, impressionable age that I was thinking through or learning to think through what is the relationship between the ideas that people have about the world and the world itself um, without having a particularly academic language for them. Um, I could go for a year at a time without reading a book up there. So it was not, um, it was a very different kind of learning. But that uh, question of how do we, how do our ideas interact with the world at large? Um, how do you stop thinking about human beings as sort of brains that are carried around on legs um, and there's, there's no inputs coming from the environment at large has really been with me ever since. And eventually through a variety of circuitous paths, it landed me in graduate school to be a historian um, and looking at the part of the world that I had first lived at the in the Arctic. Um, up kind of where North America and Russia are very close together along the Bering Strait. And part of this, of course, is because I had experience living there, but part of it is because if you are interested in the relationship between human ideas about how the world should operate and the nature in which it operates, Beringia, or this land around the Bering Strait, is a particularly good place to try to tease out that relationship. It's home to a whole series of indigenous ways of negotiating that relationship between humans and non-humans. Um, the Yupik, the Chukchi, and the Nupiak, who are the, the kind of three major ethnic groups around the Bering Strait, have been there now for millennia. And then in the 19th and 20th centuries, the Bering Strait becomes home to um, American-style capitalism, and then by the 20th century, Russian-style or Soviet-style socialism. And for a historian who's interested in ideas and nature, it's about as close to a natural experiment as you can get because the environment on the two sides of the Bering Strait is extremely similar. The species are more or less the same. There's some variation, but they're very close. Um, the indigenous groups have a long history of going back and forth, so there's enormous cultural continuity. The climate is more or less identical. Um, but of course, after 1917, after the Russian Revolution, one side of the Bering Strait tries to make society according to a capitalist model and one side of the Bering Strait tries to make it according to a socialist one. So my goal when I started writing this book back when it was my dissertation was simply to see what happened. You know, what, are they different? Are they the same? And as I was working on the research and spending time um, in archives and I had to go to archives um, all over Eurasia and North America, uh, to track down sources for this, I started to realize, or I didn't start to realize, I actually had one of those very rare eureka moments, which I figure historians get maybe one of per book. This was mine. Um, was that the, the way that the ecology of a northern environment like 
around the Bering Strait works is a little bit different than in temperate places. So where I am here in Rhode Island, um, the capacity for um, ecosystems on land and ecosystems at sea to make energy through photosynthesis is basically the same. And that energy is the absolute bedrock of what we as living things depend on. Unless you can photosynthesize, you need to be around plants and other species that do. So that's about equal in temperate places between terrestrial and marine environments. But when you get very far north, marine environments tend to be extremely biologically productive. So they're very, very good at taking sunlight and putting it together with minerals and turning it into carbon that's fixed through photosynthesis. But that's far less true on land. And that's why you have tundra landscapes that have very few to no trees in them because there's just simply not the capacity to do that uh, photosynthetic work. So essentially in the north, you have this gradient of energy where it's extremely concentrated at sea. There's some of it along the coasts. Um, and then when you get up onto the tundra, um, it's relatively scarce. And I realized when I was sitting in an archive in Vladivostok, and I think it was perhaps the coldest archive in the world, um, that this kind of geography of energy, of biological energy as it's produced um, in space, matched the trajectory of European interest and colonization of the Arctic in time. So interest in the, the Bering Strait starts at sea with harvesting whales. It moves up into coastal ecosystems, looking at seals and walrus, um, and then eventually gets out onto the tundra. And so that's where the structure of this book uh, comes from. It's told around these spaces of energy extraction um, and really uses this kind of geography of energy to think about both capitalism and socialism as 19th and 20th century ideas about the human relationship with other people and also with nature um, that's very much mediated through demands for energy but not energy in the way that energy historians and energy humanities usually look at it, which tend to be fossil fuels. So I talk very, very little about fossil fuels and talk almost entirely about various biological forms of energy and use that as a way to kind of compare how it is that various kinds of societies have imagined their relationship to kind of the really basic stuff of life, the food and the fuel that people need in order to keep alive. Some of the things that I found that surprised me were um, the enormous ways in which the Soviet and American systems end up resembling each other, um, which is perhaps less surprising, frankly, to Soviet historians than it is to American ones. Um, that has been my uh, feeling. I can see Kenny nodding. <laughs> He's also a Russian historian. Um, that, you know, I think Americans often have less familiarity with Soviet history than the inverse. Um, and so for Soviet historians, the idea that the Soviet Union is motivated by these kind of high enlightenment ideas is not quite as foreign. But it was particularly interesting around the environment where the Soviet Union is often held up as the only thing that's actually worse than capitalism um, is to be a, a kind of Promethean, communist, Stalinist kind of model of, of conducting life. And I found places where this is certainly true. But I also found places where the Soviet Union and the United States end up making almost identical decisions about how they want to manage um, the lands that they're in, more or less because they 
come to realize that they are dependent on energy in a very similar way and that that energy is held in biological stocks, not in stores of fossil fuels. And therefore it puts constraints on how many walrus you can harvest, for example. They're also often more similar than different in their relationship with Inupiaq, uh, Chukchi and Yupik uh, communities that these are both, um, you know, they're both colonial projects. They're both deeply assimilationist um, and they're both met with the, the degrees of skepticism um, that you can imagine coming from that. Um, and that's a place where some hope Soviet historians are less keen because often um, scholars of socialism are distrustful of the idea that socialists can also be colonialists given particularly Vladimir Lenin's commitment to the idea that he was not um, an imperialist, right? He didn't spend a lot of time talking to the Chukchi is what I would say to that. Um, so that's kind of the, the overall goals of the book are to really think through the ways in which people and uh, particularly different animal species, but animal species in many ways as a proxy for wider uh, biomes that they live in, um, have either lived with each other or lived in relationships of exceptional extraction. Um, and how it is that in some cases, people are able to come to make decisions that are more ecologically amenable, that allow for a, a much broader community of life to flourish, and the conditions in which those decisions are not made. And in fact, you can see real a sort of um, shrinking of the, the capacity for these ecosystems to function. And I was, um, throughout the book, um, the, the kind of opening of each section and of each chapter um, is usually told not from the perspective of a person. Um, and if you've read much academic history, you know that usually how you open something is you have a nice little anecdote about a person who will come up through the course of the chapter or the article. Um, in my case, the person that comes up through the course of the chapter um, is a whale or is a walrus or is a piece of sea ice um, or is some other being that's not a person. And usually the second voice that comes in is a, a Beringian voice. It's a Yupik or a Chukchi or an Inupiaq person. And the third or fourth uh, kind of layer that comes in are the various foreigners that come into the place. Um, and that was deliberate on my part in trying to infuse the book with some of the sense of my experience of living in the Arctic, which is that you have to pay attention to things that are other than people as the first order issue of the day. And then you pay attention to people and then you can kind of put together a broader social picture. Um, and I, I didn't even realize that I was doing that as I wrote the first draft of the book. It, it took people pointing out to me that that's kind of what I was, was doing because it was so embedded in the way that I was taught to understand um, how it is that you stay alive um, in, the, in the Arctic. But I think it also might be an argument for how you can try to stay alive in places that aren't the Arctic, um, as we are finding, perhaps to our dismay right now, um, that you can be a, a not even multicellular organism um, and have quite an impact on how it is that we, we live our lives. Um, I'm going to just close by reading a tiny piece from the, the very end of the book, um, and then I will open it up to questions. The ravens called to us from the shore in the autumn, 
out on the river to pull up the salmon nets. It was on the river, my hands in the fish gore, that my hosts explained, patiently, for I was young and not disposed to think of endings, that I was likely in the last generation to see this river, to fish these salmon in this way. Salmon are trawled aggressively at sea and they do not like warm water. The 20th century had just ended, but in the Arctic, change was already imminent. I had come by then to love a place that could kill me in a moment's carelessness. It was also a place that I, in the course of living the life I knew as normal, the life of engines and electric lights was helping erode. I remember looking out over the tundra. There is a particular light where the sun comes down bright through the clouds on a far hill, a bloom of green. It is like a thousand other moments where the sensory immediacy of the north cuts to the quick. The crackling spark sound of a spruce fire starting in a canvas tent on a morning so cold, everything touched by breath is rhymed in frost. The loamy smell of the air among great whale jaws where they crumble into a beach, some ripe with recent death, others chalk white with age. The sound of a caribou exhaling in panic before the gunshot. The thrum of fear behind the breastbone when the bear lifts her head from among the willows. To live here is to be very clear on the depths of the flesh. There I was lifting fish from the river to make them into food with mussels fed on caribou and berries. There I have been since, hands slippery with walrus fat for cooking the gray whale that fed me one summer for a week. That is the contradiction of existing in Beringia. In order to live, something, some being is always dying. As in the Nupiak legend, where the raven takes the sun from the falcon and they fight, battling a pattern of dark and light into the land and the sky. Looking at this, the raven concludes that there cannot only be light or life. Such a world would be sterile. Thank you. Thank you. That was excellent. Uh, very nice uh, presentation of the book, I think. Uh, good to hear some more about the process in the background. It's also, I think, visible in the book. I recognize the story also from how you write yourself into the book, but it's not in a very, uh, the way you do it is not like pushing yourself into the story, but you can still like feel it there. I mean, some books, the, the author is it's much more visible. Uh, it's, it's particularly in the intro and the conclusion to the book to talk about your your part of the story. And, and, and I think it matters also there's getting to know the, the place uh, and uh, the character of it. Uh, the actors also who they are in a more than a, a theoretical sense. So uh, I, think, I think there's also kind of this disciplinary question here. So of course, this is a history book with you've done like a huge amount of historical research, but to what degree would you say it's also an anthropological book? Um, I think, I think in some ways it's informed by questions that are very present in anthropology. Um, I did not do ethnographic research the way that most anthropologists would. Um, it's, it's much more of an archival book. Um, and in fact, because it's a book that covers an enormous geographic territory, I mean, it's like 1500 miles across and 600 miles deep or something like that. The kind of, really situated multi-year um, 
participant observation that an anthropologist would do, I could have done if I had 45 years to write this book and could have spent two years in a sequence of communities. And in fact, I would have loved that um, in many ways, except for the part where my university would not at all. Um, so I, I did not do that kind of research. Um, I have lots of, of collaborators and, and friends and people that I know in these communities, but when I was particularly looking for sources from the perspective of Anupiak, Yupik, and Chukchi folks, I tended to use work that those communities had produced about themselves um, because I had not been doing you know, the kind of deeply situated, multi-year, one community focused work where I, you can actually gain a sense of how you should represent the place outside. I couldn't do that in 15 different communities in two different countries. Um, and I did not want to just sort of swoop in and interview a couple of people and pretend that that was equivalent. Um, so I, I talked with, with folks there about sort of how to handle this issue. I didn't obviously want to not represent um, Beringian understandings of the place that they live. Quite the opposite. I wanted that to be foregrounded, but I also didn't want to, you know, essentially be a, a journalist who's just sort of skimming through. Um, and so this is what I came up with. Um, and fortunately, these are communities that... Um, most of them have really quite impressive oral history projects that have happened within their own communities have been, you know, they're often bilingual. So there will be, you know, Russian on one side and Chukchi on the other or English on one side and Yupik on the other. Um, they've been translated very carefully. Um, and I felt like that was sort of the responsible way as a historian to um, ask anthropological questions without being able to do real ethnographic work. Mm. Good. So now uh, the questions have started rolling in. So um, Julianne is first. We will unmute you. Hi. <laughs> I'm so glad to see your face, first of all, and I look forward to our paths crossing somewhere along the line. Um, thank you. Um, I am wondering, I've heard um, Chief Dana Tizia Tram from Old Crow um, mm -hmm. talk about shifting the narrative um, of energy in terms of oil and gas as their um, land is under threat um, to talking about energy in these terms, biological and ecological terms. And I, I was just wondering if um, you felt like talking any more about the relationships that you might have there or how those, if you feel like your ideas about that um, uh, energy <laughs> um, flow and um, context, how, how you may have um, had friendships or interactions that influenced mutually each, you know, thinking. Thanks. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I, um, it was really, when I first heard uh, Dana talk about this, it was really funny. I knew him when he was like a, a baby baby. <laughs> um, I'm a little older than he is. Um, when I lived up there, um, because it, it seemed like this real confluence. And I think it's a confluence that actually comes out of, of living in the Arctic, where so much of your daily life, um, if you are living in an even contemporary subsistence lifestyle there, is spent paying attention to where your energy comes from. And it's, it, I think that, that living there made me think really explicitly about the ways in which the energy I used was not just about the... Um, you know, the natural gas that might produce my electricity, 
um, or the, the petroleum that's in my car, um, that it's also, you know, how do I get warmth um, if I'm living in a wall tent or how do I get food? Um, and that, that very much, I think, suffused my approach to the historical sources um, and was the reason that I was paying attention to those things because I knew that if you were living in the Arctic, you had to be paying attention to them. Um, and then once you know to look for that, it's very clear that everybody, you know, all the actors that I was looking at from indigenous through to, you know, the most committed Bolshevik were also paying attention to this. Um, so it, it really does come from, in many ways, from Old Crow and being taught how not to die there um, in really pretty explicit terms. All right, then Tina is up with the next question. Hi there, Bathsheba. Greetings from Hi. Vancouver, where it's early, so that's why my camera's turned off. <laughs> um, I have two questions. Uh, one, one is pretty straightforward, and I, I haven't had a chance to read the book yet, but I'm really looking forward to it. So I was wondering about the title and whether you could speak to that and how it relates to um, the, the arguments in the book floating coast. And the second was, I was really struck when you were introducing uh, the book, when you said that um, the Arctic was a laboratory uh, for your study. And that, the, you probably know this better than I do, but the idea of Arctic as a laboratory is a trope, right? That goes back, certainly into the earlier parts of the 20th century. And people who've written about this have have said, suggested that thinking about the Arctic as a laboratory is, is somewhat problematic and it communicates control, uh, the very kinds of things that are deeply contested, um, particularly the, the idea of human control. And I'm wondering how you've come to understand uh, what a laboratory is and what the experimental learning that can come from the Arctic as a laboratory can give us, given your experience and what you just said about decentering the human? Sure, thank you. Those are great questions. Um, so the title comes from, uh, well, first of all, it comes from the fact that I'm complete rubbish at coming up with titles. Um, so I had some like terrible placeholder when I, um, when I sold the manuscript. Um, and this was actually the title of one of the the sections of the book, which it still is. And it, it refers to the way in which in the winter, the ice sheet extends across the, the Bering Strait. So it creates this coast that's still floating over the seawater. Um, and the reason that my editor and I landed on that is that the kind of, one of the things that became clear as I was writing the, the narrative of this is that as opposed to kind of just a story of change over time, this is a story of a series of transformations, some of which are quite cyclical and come back on each other like the sea ice does. And the sea ice really sets the, the tone for the entire ecosystem in the far north, um, which is that it, um, you know, the, the cycle of freezing and thawing is what also undergirds the enormous productivity of that ecosystem. Um, but it's also one in which everything is constantly unstable. And if there's, I think, a kind of sub-narrative to this book, it's that everything is always transforming into everything else. And the kind of idea of a solid human that is distinct from a whale, which is distinct from a piece of sea ice, is, is actually always about to crumble into pieces um, right under the surface of the narrative. And so the idea of a coast, which is supposed to be a piece of land, but this one is actually suspended, um, kind of put, put that idea in the title, but in a pretty subtle way. Um, 
it was my editor's idea also i should i should credit her because i was very far up a creek where the title was concerned um and i actually i mean if i if i said that the arctic is a laboratory i think what i said was natural experiment um, which is more of how i think of it which is not controlled right it's what ecologists look for also um, which in many cases you have no direct human intervention over what you're doing is looking at a, a piece of a hillside that burned in a fire and a piece of a hillside that didn't and then seeing if they respond differently and that's in some ways how i think about um the 19th and 20th centuries in the arctic is um there were two different kinds of wildfires on the two different sides of the Bering strait and the question is what did they look like um it's not that i think it's a particular um I mean, I think you could in fact do very similar kinds of work about Soviet agriculture and American agriculture or, you know, post Mao, you know, Chinese dam building and dam building in Brazil, right? Um, it's finding natural sites where you have the capacity to know enough about the landscape to see if they're comparable um, and know enough about the things that aren't people within those landscapes um, to make some comparisons that aren't just spurious, um, but with the understanding that they're never going to be one-to-one, -one, right? We don't, we don't get to do that as historians. Um, I think usually for the better um, rather than the worse. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's Kenny now, yeah. Thank you very much, both for your talk and for your book. Um, it's been a great um, inspiration for me as I try and fail to finish my dissertation. Um, you had but, what are you talking about? Okay. <laughs> but um, uh, I, 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 have a, I could ask a number of questions, but the one that I wanted to ask is uh, you um, addressed the, the stark similarities between the socialist and capitalist um, um, regimes when it comes to animal environmental history. And this goes against, I would say, a common trope that Western, Western societies, because of capitalism, Christianity, or population, are more destructive. Um, how do you, how did you go about addressing this um, I would say almost zombie idea and that people keep on pushing it down but it keeps on coming back up. So I'm curious about how you went about um, whether intentionally or not uh, addressing this sort of common, um, uh, critiquing this common idea. The idea that, um, sorry, which one, it cut out a little bit. Oh, sorry, my bad. Um, that, that, uh, capitalism or Western societies because of capitalism or uh, Christianity or population are more destructive than say uh, any other society uh, in your case the uh, USSR yes I mean I think part of what interested me about being able to put these two ideas next to each other um, is that it um, it allowed me to look at capitalism sometimes from the outside in um, and the same thing with socialism, right? You put the two things next to each other and you see what looks different or the same. And secondly, I have, I've noticed, and I've noticed it actually mostly in teaching that there is this kind of um, 
sense in which capitalism becomes this all-powerful thing and there's nothing that's ever outside of it. There's no way of living or thinking or being or anything that escapes it. And at least if you're talking about the Soviet Union, you have an entire way of governing the world that was set up in opposition to it and was trying to do something different. So it can let some light in um, and, and kind of give you the capacity to say some of these things are about industrialization and they don't, it doesn't matter how you do industry. This is just what happens when you rapidly industrialize and you're not paying attention to the byproducts. Some of this has to do with whether or not you think all people should be equal or not, right? And in that case, capitalism ends up coming off looking pretty sad, um, which I think is one of the other benefits of being able to put these things next to each other is that the, you know, for all of the faults that the Soviet Union has, and they are many and well-documented, there is this real concern at the, at the very core of it with trying to actually create justice. Um, and, I spent a lot of time looking for that in the American case, and it's, it's not there in the same way, right? Um, so I think that the, within that comparison, there's the capacity to shed light on both sides, right? There's obviously some things that the US comes off looking far better at, like the lack of slave labor, for example, um, in the Arctic, right? Obviously slave labor is an incredibly important piece of American capitalism if you're looking at climates like where I live now. Um, so I think part of what I wanted to do was say it's not, we can't just swap out one political system for the other and expect the environment to get better if you're not paying attention to the environment from the very beginning. Good, then Dimitri. Um, hi, uh, fi uh, fi fi finally in person, right? So yeah. uh, I have just, uh, I don't know, either the comments or a question. So. Um, I haven't read your book yet, but I'm really looking forward to do it. Um, and the the, uh, the idea is so uh, you you finish up your presentation with some words from indigenous narratives, and I'm wondering about the history um, of anthropology in a way. So uh, uh, Soviet tradition um, in anthropology was very much based on the indigenous narratives which were converted into the kind of overarching paradigm of ethnogenesis. So the, the, the origin of everything from, you know, uh, you know, from, you know, an, uh, a sledge, a rinder sledge to the origin of nations or something like that. The, the, the origin was the mainstream for, for them. And the kind of an opposite kind of a mirror of that story is ethnic history in North America, which also very much based on the idea of um, uh, indigenous origin, but in a, in a more, how to say, in a more democratic way. So different stories and different his, histories instead of the one, the, the, the history or the story, the main narrative. So, and I am just wondering, um, do you see any, any, how to say, uh, similar features between these two traditions when they came up to that area, to the area of penetrate, which traditionally played kind of an important role, at least since the Jesuit expedition. So from that kind of dream time of anthropology and social sciences in the US and same story in Russia, uh, that area was kind of extremely epistemologically, if you want, important for reflections upon 
so many and different things. What do you think about the kind of the indigenous backgrounds uh, of all those stories and how they affected them, the history of uh, political and geopolitical relations over the Bering Strait? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, and you're right that I mean, some of the, the original anthropology that's done there is, um, comes out of this Jessup expedition um, or comes out of students of Franz Boas. So it's, it's very much in the kind of salvage ethnography tradition that is, is born in the US um, and kind of spreads up to the poles. And that's true of some of the original Russian anthropologists who are working there, um, usually because they were exiled uh, by the czar for having socialist leanings, but were also you know, very much inspired by or working with American anthropologists. So at, at that time, there's kind of a confluence around the way in which outside researchers understand the place, which is essentially that it is, it's the most primitive place, if not on the planet, at least for either of these countries, right? They're, they're kind of assuming that the Chukchi on the Russian side and the, um, the Inuit and Inupiaq on the American side are kind of the, the ultimate refuge of kind of primitive humanity. And you, I mean, in, you don't have to interpret that into these sources. It's very much right up front in the text. Um, but then after the Russian Revolution, there's this really interesting split, at least if you're a researcher in the 21st century trying to, to use these sources, which is the Soviet Union is much less concerned with those kind of ethno-historical questions. They're not asking about relationships between the Chukchi and the Kuryak and the Chukchi and the Yupik. They're not asking about whose traditional territories were where. They're really thin on those kind of details. But if you want somebody to count up how many reindeer, how many whales were killed each year, and that kind of, like, how many sleds people had, that sort of stuff is, is very clear in the Soviet record. On the U.S. side, if you want to have any, like, data about the sort of raw numbers of things, it's not there at all. And there's lots of kind of collecting of what people then called folklore, um, lots of discussion about political organization. Um, so that they really kind of split according to what is of interest to the two different states, um, which make them interesting sources to kind of use in parallel. Um, but I think then they start to kind of come back together in the 1970s and even before that as some of these researchers start to have relationships with each other through international associations. Um, so you see kind of American and Soviet style ethnography kind of converging again um, after this long period where one side is kind of counting numbers of reindeer and the other side is, is basically continuing in this salvage ethnography um, mode. Well, of course, ignoring the fact that, you know, these cultures persisted. Um, yeah, does that answer your question? Yeah, good. We'll go on to uh, Angie. Uh, hi. Um, yeah, so that was, um, I haven't read the book either. Uh, just to say, but it sounds really fascinating. Um, and I think you may have partly just answered my question to an extent with that discussion about um, anthropology. But what I was curious about was uh, the role of scientists in all of this and kind of what, which, what kinds of scientists are involved and what kinds of forms of expertise and knowledge and how that interacts with the indigenous people 
and whether this is a case where it's very similar on both sides of your natural experiment or whether it's different. So uh, yeah, no, I'd like to hear more. Yeah, so I should preface this by saying I'm not a historian of science. Um, so I wasn't, I wasn't going directly at that question, but scientists were certainly um, present in, on both sides of the, the strait. Um, most of the ways that they come up for me is in scientists that are interested in particular species. So a lot of them have to do with, in, in the US case, with the Department of Game or Fisheries and Wildlife in some ways, um, trying to do animal census, trying to do wolf control um, in you know, reindeer breeding programs, that kind of, um, you know, very 20th century, how do we make this landscape productive? Um, so there's lots of different uh, folks on the U.S. side who are coming in with, with those sorts of ideas. They're often informed by range science and wolf science that's in the, in the temperate regions, and they're just kind of exporting that to Alaska and then discover that it often needs some changing when it hits the ground there, um, and are often in quite contentious relationship with Native communities in the 20th century because they are, um, well, first of all, they don't pay very much attention to the fact that Native folks know what they're talking about, um, which is a shock to no one who's ever studied this kind of colonial science, um, and also because they often come in with really restrictive uh, hunting regulations. So there's an assumption on the U.S. side that people who do any kind of hunting that's related to market production are going to automatically kill too many animals. Um, and there's very little understanding about how many, for example, how many caribou it takes to get through a winter if you are a family living in the north. Um, they, they tend to radically undercount that number. Um, same thing with walruses. Um, and they tend to kind of not take into as much account as they could the degree to which overhunting is almost entirely brought in from the outside um, by 19th century whalers and walrus hunters. Um, and on the Soviet side, there's the, the kind of uh, initial wave of scientists who come in are very interested in, in getting rid of any kind of capitalist hunting practices because that's what the whole Soviet Union is doing at the time um, and kind of put in uh, a socialist way of managing whichever landscape it is. And there ends up being a lot of difference between um, the kind of range scientists who work on reindeer populations. Um, we're trying to basically maximize what the sustainable yield is for reindeer. Um, they look in a lot of ways like the American version, they just have a different way of organizing that reindeer farming process. Versus the marine biologists um, who are really concerned with the Soviet Union over harvesting um, walruses and whales in particular. Um, and the Soviet marine biologists who are paying attention to walruses actually are really critical in helping the Soviet Union create legislation that keeps them from basically rendering the Pacific walrus extinct. Um, they pass a bunch of legislation in the 50s that, that brings the walrus hunt down to very sustainable levels. And then just sort of despite the pretty constant protestations of marine biologists on Soviet whaling ships, they do not manage to do the same thing for um, the Soviet whaling fleet, which just kind of whales in excess um, up until the 1970s. Um, and that has to do with kind of the, the place of those two different fisheries within this, the Soviet system. Um, but I think like, you know, like most of these scientists, their role in indigenous communities can be really mixed. Um, some of the marine biologists now have been invited in by 
um, Anupiaq communities because, um, and have been working with them now for, you know, 20 or 30 years pretty closely, um, partly as a way of giving information to the International Whaling Commission that's actually accurate to what native hunters are seeing. Um, back when it was just the IWC um, making these judgments for native whalers, they constantly overestimated how many whales were being killed by Nupiaq hunters and underestimated the number of bowhead whales who were alive. Um, and this kind of partnership between marine biologists and um, particularly the community of Utkiavik, um, which is, used to be called Barrow, which is the very, very northern part of Alaska, has actually been really fruitful. Um, so then there's also these places where, you know, these, these two commu knowledge communities have actually come together in really productive ways. All right, then we have uh, another question then from a historian of science, so Peller. Um, I got called a geographer the other day by someone and I didn't know if I should take it as a compliment or not. So a historian of science is just fine. Uh, thank you. The, the, the book is wonderful. And as much praise as it's got, I can say it isn't enough. And I strongly encourage everyone to buy this very reasonably priced volume as well. Well, you still can. Uh, I've got two questions. The first one, it, it relates to this lovely idea of the fragility of the individual as related to the ecosystem and the fact that death is something that is always present and possibly even imminent. The question I've got there is, do you see a historical trajectory in which the focus of strength on the individual and this valorization you particularly see in Alaska of the hardy pioneer, often male, as being able to withstand the elements and withstand this tough place, becomes transposed onto the strength of a collective entity, whether that be the communist state in the USSR or whether it be industrial concerns in Alaska. I mean, it could even be cheek and say anything from oil companies to the Lohman brothers to possibly even the North Slope Borough. And I'm wondering whether you see a trajectory there in which forms of collective organization have come to take on a role of, if not guaranteeing against that fragility, then acknowledging that fragility and finding themselves a place in the political ecosystem that's mediated in a sense by the fact that they are situated in a natural ecosystem in which fragility is so important. And the second question, this is a bit more of a cheeky one. Have you ever thought about writing a sequel that takes up the story when the cooperation starts to pick up in the 70s? I mean, you know that Bob Bartlett is trying to get the Soviets interested in polar bears already in the 60s. There's cooperation in the 70s and 80s, and you know that when the wall comes down, the links between Chukotka and Alaska are so strong that there's the lovely story about uh, Abramovich goes to Vic Fisher's house and tries to interest him in becoming governor of Chukotka. And that really, I... I I, I don't know because I don't know the history well enough, but it occurs to me that you tell a lovely story in which two systems become an awful lot of thinking about the differences. And I would love to know your thoughts about what happens when those two systems start to attempts are made to enmesh them and to what direction you might see flows. That's a very self-indulgent request rather than a question, I should say. Uh, no, those are both great. Um... I really like this, this question about where the collective sits, particularly in the, the kind of American imagination, which so overprivileges the idea that individuals can make things happen um, up north where it pretty radically and quickly becomes clear that that's not the case. Um, I think the, the Soviet Union had a really interesting um, approach to this in the Arctic because of course their desire to overhype individuals was much mitigated, right? The, the goal was to promote 
sort of collective action and have heroes, you know, and Arctic heroes in particular are very important in the Soviet sphere, as you very well know, but they're, they're important because they are there to inspire the collective forward, not because they are the be all end all. Um, and so I think that it, it looks different on the Soviet side because of that desire to, to create collectives from the beginning. And the idea that really the only way forward into utopia was through communal work, um, not through the individual going off and, you know, hacking out a piece of the, the wilderness to make their own, right? They were not, um, not quite as obsessed with the Turnerian kind of idea of history. Um, but I think in Alaska, and I think that this is present into the present day, there's this real tension between the kind of maintenance of that myth, and you see it in, you know, the way that the gold rush in particular is memorialized, and it's often held up as, you know, kind of a bunch of solo guys out there doing their own thing. It's very gendered, it's um, very individual. And the fact that none of the major projects that allow for economic extraction from Alaska are possible without not just collective action, but usually federal. Um, and of course, Alaska being, you know, an extreme version of the American Western tendency to dislike federal intervention. This is a very painful thing to make clear to people, but, you know, the, the Trans-Alaska Pipeline requires a kind of coordination and collective action um, that individuals are very much subsumed to what um, oil companies and, and the state and the federal uh, kind of bureaucracy are able to do. Um, so I think those things remain in tension um, and that, you know, actually Alaska is about to, because of the combination of their governor defunding the state to such a radical degree earlier this year, um, and the fact that their three major industries, which are oil, fish, and tourism, are all in extremely dire straits at the moment because tourism is going to be down this summer. The fisheries are potentially not going to open to commercial fishermen because of the influx of people that would bring COVID-19 with them. And the fact that, you know, oil has actually gone negative, um, it's possible that they're gonna close the pipeline for the first time in its history, means that that kind of extreme individualistic ideal, which underwrote the kind of current governor's policy, the like, just go out there and do your own thing, the state won't be involved at all, um, is going to be put under enormous pressure um, and is, is potentially, I think, going to kind of collapse under its own insufficiency in the North um, and people's awareness that you actually do need to operate as collectives um, in order to not just survive, but allow for communities to thrive. Great. Thank you so much, um, Bathsheba. I know there are a couple other questions, but we're coming up rapidly on our time, so we're not going to get to those. Um, but I want to just say that it's been such a pleasure to have you on and talking about this, especially since uh, I met you as a PhD student and you um, at, at, a, at a summer school in St. Petersburg. Um, and um, I was lucky enough to have you write a chapter um, on reindeer and the differences um, across the Bering Strait in uh, my volume, Northscape. So um, it's just been so wonderful to see um, your trajectory in, in this book and in this study. And I think it shows us really the kind of thing that we all need to be doing as environmental uh, historians. So um, 
and, and more broadly in environmental humanities and thinking about relationships um, in the way that you have. So I just want to thank you so much uh, for coming on today.